Jesus, we love you. You are such an awesome Savior and King. You are the first and you are the last. And apart from you, there is no God. How we need you, Jesus. Please forgive us, Lord. We are such sinful people. We're often blinded by our sin, and we're so quick to point out others' faults before we can acknowledge our own. We have clung to the culture of this age and the idols of self. We have chosen to not speak truth to each other. We have chosen to not reconcile with each other, but to stay silent because it feels better or easier than dealing with the conflict or sin. We fear what others think more than following the instruction of the Bible. You have called us to go to one another, to turn aside from being passive, to turn to speaking truth and being honest with one another. We ask for your forgiveness for the bitterness and anger that each of us has allowed into our hearts. Some of us harbor that bitterness towards just one, and others of us allow bitterness towards many. I pray you would open our eyes to that bitterness and anger that we need to repent from. Thank you for your provision in this last year. It has been a long year for many of us, and through it you have been steadfast. Your promises have never failed us. Thank you for the relationships in our church, for the brothers and sisters who are able to be honest and truthful and seek reconciliation. Thank you for speaking into our lives. Lord, I pray, praise you for the individual gifts that each person brings to this body. And Jesus, I ask that you would continue to speak into our lives, to nudge us, to push us towards being more like you. Help us to desire a wholeness in our relationships. Sin and conflict will happen, but I pray we would want to repent to one another and to you. I pray you would help us to see the importance of reconciliation. And I pray you would knock down our pride so we can forgive one another when we've been hurt. Lord, please care for our neighboring communities and friends and extended families that have been impacted by the fires. Please bring your hope to them. May you be known through this hard time in their lives. And Jesus, we also pray for the weariness that's continuing to haunt many people. Help lift that from our shoulders. I pray we can be a people who dive into a personal relationship with you, knowing that we need you. May we center our sights on you. And Jesus, please help those here who have anxiety about what the autumn and the winter will bring in our city and our homes. Help us to really cast our anxieties and fears onto you, to daily realize that you care for us deeply. We are in awe of the grace you have given us. Help us to be present here and now and to learn from you today. In your name, amen. Amen. Why don't you grab a seat? And you can open your Bibles up to Ephesians 2. I want to start this morning by thanking many of you in the church who have uh, been just giving your lives to folks, opening your homes up, caring for one another in the midst of the fires and the things that are going on. And so thank you for that. Um, it really shows the heart of Jesus. Thank you also for praying for people in our community and in our church that have been affected and uh, continue to do that. I'm, I'm proud to be part of this church because of uh, the work that many of you have been doing. Well, we're still in uh, the mini-series um, based on the application of the truth of Mark 13. We're going to do one more today, and then we'll finish off uh, next week, and then we'll jump back into Mark 14. And we're talking about kingdom citizens, being kingdom citizens amidst chaos. Let me start this morning with an introduction on our topic that we're talking about today of reconciliation and peace. 
On September 30th, 1938, 11 months before Great Britain formally declared war on Germany, Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain returned home after negotiating what was called a peace pact with the leader of Nazi Germany known as Adolf Hitler. In that document, it stated, quote, the desire of our two peoples never to go to war with one another again. The British and really the rest of Europe, rightly so, had been exhausted by the devastation of World War I. It was only a generation earlier, and they were still dealing with the fallout of it. But it was so beating them down and painful for them that it was causing them to look past the blatantly militant behavior of Hitler and the rising Nazi party to settle for a version of peace that could only be defined as a lack of conflict, nothing more. Now, while this suited the larger powers quite well in Europe, it unfortunately didn't work for some of the smaller powers like Czechoslovakia and Poland, who less than a year later were under Nazi control. Historically, this time in Britain was known as the time of appeasement. It led to Chamberlain being ousted and removed and Winston Churchill taking the reins as prime minister over Great Britain as they entered World War II. Now, this idea of peace in our culture and in many others unfortunately centers on the same definition of an absence of conflict. In fact, it was only a few years ago where someone shared with me, is that truly what peace means? And so when many American Christians read that Jesus is the Prince of Peace and that he blesses the peacemakers, we automatically, in our American view, assume that this means those who do not engage in conflict. And this then causes confusion when you find places where Jesus says seemingly crazy things like this. This is Matthew 10, 34 through 36. Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. A version of peace that is without conflict, that doesn't really seem like Jesus is being that kind of a peacemaker, does it? But when you understand the view of peace spoken of throughout the Old Testament, it actually makes a lot of sense. And you can balance this very easily with the idea that Jesus is the Prince of Peace because of the word in the Hebrew, shalom, that actually speaks of righteousness dwelling and right relationship or wholeness between God, man, and creation, where the fullness of restoration has taken place. And sometimes that means that conflict is necessary, as we discussed last week. What is interesting is that the Bible in whole speaks to the fact that this kind of peace that the Bible talks about, wholeness, right relationship, can only exist under the authority of Jesus as king. And so therefore we know that the fullness of that shalom, it's not going to come until Christ rules and reigns and we are in the resurrected and renewed new earth and new creation. But in the meantime, we have to ask ourselves, does that mean that there's to be no part of it in the kingdom, the inaugurated kingdom of Christ? In other words, this type of peace can only happen under his rule, where the citizens of his kingdom operate in his law and reign. Notice that his rule and his peace are paralleled in places like uh, this one. You guys know this from what we read often at Christmas time, Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. In other words, he's the one that will be running how things go. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. 
Now, this would sound kind of exclusionary and maybe even hateful if Jesus were just some human leader who wanted to show favoritism based on his own depraved view of value. But why this makes so much sense is that he is the creator. He's the source of all good, righteousness, justice, order, and love. So his will, his law, is empirically perfect in what he calls us to because he is the creator. He knows how we're supposed to function and how society should function. His way is the right way. So when Jesus is ruling in the hearts of his people, there should be the truest form of shalom amongst his people while we exist in the midst of a world that is ordered by chaos. I know that's a little bit of a funny phrase. To be a peacemaker in the mindset of the Bible is not just getting conflict to stop. That is part of it. That is true. But it is more than that. It is replacing conflict and division with unity and wholeness and mutual understanding all under the rule of Christ. To simply stop conflict while division or sin lies underneath is to be what one pastor will talk about calls a peace faker. Not a peacemaker, a peace faker. To be a peacemaker is to act to restore relationship where it's been ruptured and to bring those divided into reconciled relationship. But unfortunately, we live in an age where peace faking and appeasement is met with blatant and unapologetic conflict. There's no middle ground. For example, as if 2020 weren't weird enough already, this last week, President Trump brokered a peace treaty between the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, and Israel. Just kind of flew by in the news, right? Nobody really paid attention to it. Now, without getting too much into the detail of this, because there's a lot that could be said, and we'll probably say a lot more when we get to the book of Daniel and Revelation, uh, we're just going to leave it there. But until then, my point is this. We live in an age where we readily will say, peace, peace, when there is actually no peace. But as the inaugurated kingdom of God, the kingdom of Shalom, in which the Prince of Peace reigns, We need to be a people that understand true peace. If we are to be God's kingdom citizens amidst a world in chaos, as we've been studying in this miniseries, we need to know what true peace looks like, and we need to be able to employ it in our lives. And to do so, we need to understand the ministry of reconciliation. You can write this down, true peace, the ministry of reconciliation. That's what we're going to talk about today. Thus far, as we've studied the application of Mark 13 and its eschatology, we've looked at the idea that Jesus is king and his people need courage amidst all this chaos. We need to have confident expectation and give that to one another of Christ's return and his coming kingdom. And to do that, we need one another engaged in the work of living as people obedient to the commands of Christ and his gospel. I don't know about you guys, but when I watch people in obedience to Christ, not perfection, but obedience, I watch people repenting from sin, feeling conviction, doing reconciliation in their relationships, that encourages me in the Lord, doesn't it? That gives me courage in the kingdom and reign of Christ. When I see brothers and sisters casting aside the word of God as if they can pick and choose like it's a buffet and not following Jesus, that discourages me. I don't know about you guys. That discourages me. That takes away courage. And so we want to be a people that give one another courage by our obedience, not just by lip service, but by our obedience. And again, that doesn't mean perfection, praise God, because I am definitely not perfect. But walking together in common humility and readiness to repent should we be found in sin. 
the core of our covenant with one another is the gospel, dear friends, and the truth communicated in God's word. And if we all play by that playbook, we're going to be united. If we decide to pick and choose based upon what we believe to be true and right, then we're going to be totally divided. Last week, we looked at the fact that keeping unity and obedience to the gospel often requires conflict that sanctifies because the gospel rightly preached will both unite and divide. I'd recommend you go listen to that if you haven't already. It will unite those pursuing Christ in holiness while dividing those unwilling to obey the gospel. And even though the church, as it stands in this age, is both people who are truly elect and non-elect mixed together, often worshiping together, the work of the church is to set itself apart in holiness. You might say, Hans, how do I know if I'm elect? Well, Jesus already did all the work, so his part is done. It's presented to you by grace. How you know you're actually his is walking in obedience, not perfection, obedience to his rule in your life. If you do that, guess what? You're part of the elect, and you don't have to worry. You'll endure. To show that shows to the world that we are a different people with a true source of power that is different than what they have, and it shows the power of the cross. Because the church is supposed to be an outpost of reconciliation amidst the world of division. The church is to be an outpost of reconciliation amidst the world of division. Guys, you may have noticed because I pretty much wear my emotions on my sleeve and I'm, I'm pretty easily figured out uh, that there's been tons of frustration over the last seven months about masks and no masks and about uh, different opinions on racial reconciliation, about politics, and you may have seen frustration. Here's the bottom line. The frustration that's come is because the church is supposed to be an outpost of reconciliation, not divided like the world. We're supposed to be different. Amen? Amen. We're supposed to be different. If you take a cursory look at the evangelical church as a whole over the last 50 years, it's been full of wonderful people doing wonderful things, trying their best but we've struggled as a church in whole to differentiate ourselves because we've cast aside the call to be holy and united in that holiness. Instead of holiness and unity, many in the church at large have leaned on other characteristics to try and attract non-believers. They've leaned on business marketing schemes. They've leaned on being the nicest people around. They've leaned on being the most relevant. They've leaned on being the funnest, oftentimes youth ministry especially. They've leaned on being the most service-oriented. But in many cases, dear friends, non-believers can find these things very easily in the world without anything to do with Christ. I remember going and serving uh, at a, a homeless kitchen years ago, and it was a Christian ministry, and I got there, and I started talking to people in the kitchen. I was the only Christian. <laughs> The entire kitchen was filled with non-believers, nicest people I've ever met who didn't know Jesus. The world can get these things out there. What is it that Scripture calls us to do to be separate from the kingdom of darkness in the world? What differentiates us? Well, I would submit to you that what differentiates the church is that we are a reflection of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Only Christians, only the true inaugurated kingdom of Christ can reflect the gospel. That's why we're called the body of Christ. And so really, we're supposed to be a reflection of the gospel in action. We still, yes, must be kind. Church shouldn't be boring. It should be somewhat fun. 
We should be people that are service-oriented. We shouldn't cast those things aside. But if that is what we are waiting to use to evangelically draw people into the church, we've missed the point that to be evangelical is to preach the gospel with words and actions. So we delved deep into that gospel last week, and I would recommend that you go and listen to that. But this week, let's take a look at it from just a different angle. Same gospel, same truth, but let's look at it from a different angle. Would you turn with me, if you haven't already, to Ephesians 2 and take a look. We're going to look at version, uh, verses 11 through 22. It says there in Ephesians 2, 11, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated or divided from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. What did he do to the hostility? He killed it. It was hostility that existed because we had rebelled against our God. We were enemies of our God. And so there was hostility, rightly so. His wrath was, was destined for us. And we were hostile to him. But not only did he stop the hostility, a ceasing of the conflict, but notice that he made one new unified man in place of the two, making peace. There's the biblical definition of peace. It is the ceasing of hostility, yes. But it is also the melding together and being unified. I see this all the time in marriage counseling. Well, we're doing okay because we just don't fight all that much. Well, do you actually have relationships? Well, not really. You know, we kind of have our separate lives and we do our separate things, but we at least don't fight. Guys, that's not a Christian marriage. <laughs> that's a, a, con a conflictless marriage, but a Christian marriage is unified and united and working towards the same goals. Well, he continues on there. He says, verse 19, um, uh, or verse 18, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now you can go back and hear the details of this, uh, this text in our Ephesians series from a few years ago, but in short, we were separated and divided unreconciled to God and to one another because of the sin in our hearts and in our actions. And this is the effect of sin that we saw in the garden, right? Sin came in and mankind was connected with God and Adam and Eve were tight. And then all of a sudden sin came in and what happened? Hiding, lack of transparency, blaming, and all of a sudden separation from God. No wholeness, only division. And this is the stance and posture that mankind has continued in throughout history. But the gospel is that God in his steadfast love in his compassion, sent his son Jesus to be the sacrificial lamb that would take away our sins so that we might be forgiven and reconciled to God and to his people with whom he exists in covenant faithfulness. And all those who truly walk with him 
are solidly united in being that one holy temple in which the Spirit of God dwells. Paul reiterates this idea just a little bit later there in Ephesians 4. Take a look at verse 1. Your Bible may even have the header there that says unity in the body of Christ. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Can you think of a better definition of unity? If we're walking in the Spirit, dear friends, we will be zealous and see an urgency in maintaining the unity of the Spirit among the people of God. Amen. Not to appeasement, but actually quite the opposite. To deal with sin when it creeps in so that we don't just have an absence of conflict, but rather we're keeping short accounts so bitterness does not grow among us and our relationships remain strong. The author of Hebrews makes this same connection in Hebrews 12, 14 through 15. Notice the connection between uh, fighting against bitterness and, and peace. It says, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. You see why holiness is so important, dear friends? Amen. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. You see, when bitterness springs up in our lives, it doesn't just affect us. Well, I can contain it. I'll just hold it. Nobody needs to know that I'm angry with this person or frustrated with this person. But what does it do? It spreads like a weed. It affects your home if it's in your marriage, in your family. It affects the church you're part of if it's in your church. It affects your workplace if it's in your workplace. It spreads. Now, I can't control your workplace. I can't try and tell you to make changes in your workplace but I can implore you and exhort you to operate within the mind of a Christian who's walking by the fruit of the Spirit in your home and in this church. The reason this is so important is that in walking in and pursuing this kind of wholeness and posture of reconciliation, we declare to the entire cosmos who our king is. This, in part, is what Paul's describing there in chapter 3, verse 10. Take a look there at 3.10. It says, so that through the church, the assembly, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Just think with me for a second about this, guys, okay? The kingdom of darkness is ruled by the adversary of God who comes to kill, steal, and destroy. And that includes relationships with God and with one another. His goal is division. It's the kingdom of darkness, division. The kingdom of God is ruled by the prince of peace, who sacrificed himself so that reconciliation might be gained and achieved. If we are operating in unreconciled conflict with one another or passive-aggressive false peacemaking, under which rule are we living? Think about that for a second. Under which rule are we living? It's heavy. It's very heavy to think about that but it's a truth we need to understand. And this can quickly drive us to trying to find a false peace, to be doormats in relationships, or maybe even to be peace fakers with people we are actually growing bitter towards. But dear friends, that's not the heart of God either. The heart of God 
is that we each bear the responsibility of being ministers of reconciliation. That we each bear the responsibility of being ministers of reconciliation. Now, guys, this only works if each of us are choosing to hold ourselves accountable to this idea. Do you guys remember that control box that I showed you a few weeks ago? I know people are getting sick of this, but I've started to see it in some homes I've visited. It's up on the fridge. I think that's a great idea. Because so many of us, we worry about everything in the world and everyone else when, in fact, the only thing that we can control is what? What's the only thing you can control? Can we control anyone else? No, not at all. And so we need to be people that operate in looking at ourselves and saying, what is it that we're doing? How are we following this and being ministers of reconciliation? The second we try and move into forcing the other person to reconcile, we have moved from empowerment into ceaseless striving, and it's futile. That's why I exhort each of you, no one in here, no elder, no pastor, no brother or sister can make you reconcile. You have to hold yourself accountable to it. Holding ourselves accountable to reconciled relationships is part of what we have covenanted together if you're part of the membership of this church. In page six of our membership covenant, it says this, when I have bitterness or anger towards another member of the local body, I will speak with that member about the activity that has caused these feelings so that we can work towards reconciliation and unity at all times. Why is this? Well, because on page one of our covenant, it says this, we believe that the love and activity of the church within the world is God's stated method of spreading the good news that he is real and is capable of justice, restoration, and reconciliation. Dear church, is it hard to operate in peacemaking and pursuit of reconciliation? Is that hard? Is it hard? Oh, yeah, it's hard. It is hard. Especially when you think that you are in the right and the other person or persons are in the wrong. Especially when you've been the one that's hurt. But dear church, this is where the rubber meets the road of the gospel we proclaim every Sunday and declare as we take communion together as a group in community, common unity. We declare that truth. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians 5 and you'll see what I mean. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 11, and you'll see that when we take communion and we declare the Lord's body and blood, when we center on the gospel, we'll see that it's about reconciliation. Take a look at 2 Corinthians 5, 11. It says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others, but we are, what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what, it is in the, what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we, are right in our, if we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. 
That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself and counting their trespasses, uh, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Because we have been saved through the reconciling work of Jesus, a God-man who gave himself for the very people who were his enemies, We take that same spirit and law of love forward and operate in obedience to it as we seek to reconcile with one another. Guys, to not do so is to proclaim the saving power of the gospel null and void. Think about it this way, guys. Let's say Michael comes up to me one day and he says, hey, Hans, man, I've got the best deal for you ever. I just, you know, I just bought a new car, but the the best deal for you is you've got to buy a Chevy. Like a Chevy is the car. It'll be the perfect car. It's the most wonderful deal you can find. You should do it. And I look over and he's driving a Ford. And I say, well, Michael, why haven't you, why didn't you go get the deal with the Chevy? Well, well, yeah, no, 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 this is good for you. You know, I've got my own reasons. I'm over here. Am I going to go buy the Chevy? No, <laughs> no I'm not. <laughs> I'm going to look at him and go, uh, you're trying to sell me something that you don't even subscribe to. The ministry of reconciliation is the medium by which we go to the world and say, guys, I was reconciled to one who I was divided from. And now I operate in the ministry of reconciliation because it's been so powerful in my life. I was the enemy of my Savior, and yet he died for me. And so in response, I now carry and proclaim the ministry of reconciliation. Not false peace, not peace faking, but true peace, reconciled to God and to one another. Because the church is made up of individuals who cast away relationships, cast away marriages and friendships and churches as if they were nothing, leaving a wake of irreconciled relationships behind them, friends, I think we have little to give the world to tell them that there is true power in the gospel we believe. And I think this started all the way back with church schisms back hundreds of years ago. The lack of reconciliation in the church waters down the gospel of reconciliation that we just read. Dear brothers and sisters, this is why Paul gets so frustrated with the churches he writes to when he finds out that they are divided. Look with me at 1 Corinthians 3, verse 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1. It says, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it, and even now you are not yet ready for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? You see, at Corinth, there were cliques following different leaders at war with one another. Uh, They were letting sin go unchecked in their congregation. If you go back and look at the section we were just in in 2 Corinthians, uh, Paul even says, he says, guys, my heart is open to to you, but is your heart open to me? Let your affections come, Right? They were refusing to reconcile with Paul because he was calling them to repentance and they didn't like it. 
And so they were fighting against him, and he was trying to reconcile with them and say, guys, we need to be in unity, and they were fighting it. Brothers and sisters in Christ in Corinth were suing one another in secular courts. Their marriages, based on covenant, were dissolving as if there was nothing. And, and Paul was exhorting them to something different. Uh, move forward to 1 Corinthians 11 and look at what was going on in the middle of their, their love feast, their agape meals, where they were practicing what we try and practice in communion. The Lord's Supper there in 11.17. Look at what has happened. Paul says, But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Paul says here, his words, that when divisions form, it tells who are those who are his, or who are actually the Lord's, and actually genuine in the, their faith. How? Because those who repent from that way of treating one another and show themselves to be genuine citizens of the kingdom of God, they're actually the Lord's people. Look at 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven. then. He describes communion, and then he says in verse 27, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. In this context, guys, to eat unworthily of the Lord's body, it's given in the context of division relationally. If you take of the Lord's, uh, the Lord's reconciliation, oh man, Lord, I remember that you reconciled me to you, but then you live without reconciliation for your brothers, you're eating of the Lord's body and blood unworthily. This is why in, in church history, uh, churches would close the tables to people who are in unreconciled conflict in the church. We don't do that anymore, but that's the reason it was there. This is why Paul's constantly calling the body to peace, constantly calling them to peace. Uh, take a look in Philippians when he writes to this wonderful church at Philippi, even in the awesome model church of Philippi, uh, because there's humans just like here at Mission Fellowship. He had to entreat people and call them to, to unity. This is Philippians 4, 2 through 3. Just in the midst of his letter, he says this. Uh, he says, I entreat Eudoia and I entreat Synecdoche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Two women were at odds in the church and they wouldn't reconcile. And Paul's like, hey, <laughs> get them to figure it out. Help them. We should all be helping one another to reconcile. Little quick story. Uh, years ago now, it's been a while, I was sitting in this room of pastors in town. And a pastor uh, who I really respected and still respect very much, he, he said, uh, hey, by the way, I found out that the church that I, I'm leading uh, came out of a split here in town. And uh, he said to all of us, he said, so I took our leadership down and we met with the church we split from and we, we reconciled. And I remember sitting there looking at that guy going, this is a guy, this is a guy that I can trust. 
This is a guy that I can follow because he's got the ministry of reconciliation. And that was an amazing moment for me because I saw in action the church doing something that we should not be doing once in a blue moon, but we should be doing regularly. That's the gospel that we should reflect. It's the nature of God. It's the nature of his holiness. Now, we need to understand what it is to be ministers of reconciliation and a community of reconciliation. And to do that, we need to know and apply the practical nature of reconciliation, the practical nature of reconciliation. Now that we kind of have our bearings scripturally, let's talk about the practical nature of what reconciliation looks like. Because we can talk about it until we're blue in the face, but until we know the steps to do it, we're going to be stuck. How do we reconcile in conflict? Guys, if it were easy, everybody would do it. Counselors, pastors, we'd all be out of a job because nobody would need help. It's tough, it's difficult, but it's also very simple because if we look at Christ and his gospel as our guide, we'll know the steps. So let me start with giving some, some items that need to be done before conflict ever comes. These steps are useful in your marriage, in your friendships, with your kids, with your believing friends, and especially within the church body. And so the work of preparation has a few steps. Let's take a look at them here. You can write them down if you want. First, you have to decide to which kingdom you belong. Christ has done his work to reconcile to you, uh, of you to him and to his people. The question now is, do you want to accept, yes, the forgiveness, but also enter into the obedience that's called for in his reign? If so, the Lord has done all he needs to do to justify you, He's even poured out his spirit into your heart if you want to follow him. You now have the hard work of holding yourself accountable to that obedience as sanctification occurs and constantly killing the rebellious heart that fights against it. Brothers and sisters, can I just say a quick word to you? In our society that loves spunkiness and loves sassiness and loves rebellion, it breaks my heart when I see brothers and sisters in Christ take pride in their rebellious spirit especially here in the Northwest. There's like this pioneer spirit where, yeah, I've got this rebellious side to me. Kill it. Kill it. Amen. If you find yourself glorying in it, kill it. That's not godly. You can do that right where you sit right now. You can cry out to God and say, Lord, I want to give my life to you. I want to follow under your reign. And Lord, when I do make mistakes because I am imperfect, Soften my heart so that conviction comes so I can repent as quickly as possible. And then walk with him. And if you are doing that right now, if you're crying out to God and wanting to walk in his kingdom, I would love to know that afterwards. Come up and chat with me. I'll pray for you. And we'll start walking together in discipleship. I'd love to walk with you in that. So we need to decide to which kingdom we belong. If we wait to do that in the midst of conflict, is that going to go well for us? I don't know about any of you, but I do not think rightly in conflict. When conflict happens, I've got all guns blazing. And so I need to make the decision beforehand into which kingdom I'm going to obey. Secondly, we need to do preparation work to set our mind and hearts on covenant faithfulness with those with whom you are engaged in the work of regular sanctification. Covenant commitment is our safety net to let us know that we're not going to split if given correction or accountability. It's also our padlock to keep us from allowing our own feelings to determine when we need to stay faithful to a covenant commitment. Uh, one of my pastors in the past, he, he used to say, uh, wedlock is a padlock, talking about the covenant of marriage. 
And I remember uh, joshing him and saying, that's eh, not very romantic. I don't know if that's going to go on any uh, Hallmark cards anytime soon, right? Congratulations. <laughs> Wedlock's a padlock, right? But man, I don't know about those of you that are married, but I am so thankful for that padlock. There were so many times in my own uh, ignorance and stupidity and quite honestly, dead sin, where I wanted to burn my marriage down because I felt hurt or I felt right. And praise God that he kept me in the padlock of wedlock because I love my wife and I love my family and I love this church. The damage I would have done by following my feelings would not have paid off. And so we need to set our mind to covenant faithfulness even when it doesn't feel good. Honestly, our honesty can flow in these kind of relationships a lot better when we don't have every statement of truth being countered with the threat of abandonment. Sanctification can't grow in that kind of an environment. We live in an age, dear friends, where promises can be broken without consequence, loans can be defaulted on without a second thought, marital unions ordained under the eyes of God can be broken because of irreconcilable differences. Question time, dear brothers and sisters. Should the church follow in that path? Should the church follow in that path? So we should commit to the hard work of reconciliation no matter what it takes. Now, a good friend and mentor who I love dearly, I was discussing this with him and, and uh, I kind of laid out, uh, this was a while back, I laid out some of these thoughts for him. And he said, well, this is technically true, Hans. You got to realize it's just the inaugurated kingdom. You're, you're being kind of idealistic and, and this is kind of unrealistic in the church today. Now, while I agree that sometimes things just break, I have to ask us to make division the absolute last nuclear option after we've exhausted all others, even to the point of going to the entire church body for help before we do. Third, in preparation, within those covenant relationships, we need to purpose to live in transparency. Transparency doesn't just automatically happen. We have to purpose for it. We have to open our lives up to those with whom we are in covenant. And this is a product of verbal honesty and openness as well as time spent together. Friends, if we never spend time together, you're going to easily be able to hide all your areas of weakness and blind spots. And if you're waiting for the church to give you more options to connect, I would say, don't wait for us. Do it. Just start connecting. We're, we're trying to get more stuff done where we can connect, but you guys just grab each other's phone numbers and emails and connect and hang out and grow in relationship. Many of you in this church get this, and I see you walking in transparency, and I want to just thank you because it's so beautiful when you actually see it happening. You've peeled off the mask in full humility, exposing those areas of weakness and struggle to the community that loves you. But if that's not you, though, can I call you lovingly to more? To try and keep up the facade will only harm you and harm this church and hold back sanctification in your life and the life of this church. So I want to lovingly call you to more, to open your life up to the people around you. Fourth, in preparation before we ever get to conflict, once you've made up your mind to be set apart for his kingdom reign, you need to recognize that sanctifying conflict and correction is actually a blessing. Embrace it as a believer. If a person critiques you as they are abandoning you, that's not okay. That's unfair. But if a person who is engaged in covenant faithfulness comes to you and gives you a hard word, it needs to be embraced, at least to the point of looking inside to see if it's true and maybe talking to a few people to see if it's true. 
Proverbs 27.6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. I don't know about you guys, but I would much rather have the wounds of a friend than the kisses of an enemy. And so I want to ask you, with these four things, as we uh, look at what it is to prepare our hearts, which of these may you, maybe you haven't fully embraced? I want you to note which ones you maybe need to work on. Maybe it's all four. Maybe you need to engage in this preparation work more regularly. And so I want to challenge you to do some work and figure out which of these you need to step into more and maybe encourage you to chat with a few people in this body, maybe your spouse or one of your brothers or sisters in Christ about which ones you're recognizing you don't participate in. Once you've done the preparation work, you're ready to step into sanctifying conflict when it comes. And here is what that looks like. I I pulled together some resources that I use in the midst of mediation, as well as some wonderful articles by a pastor named uh, Thabiti Anyabwile. I just call him Pastor Thabiti because I always screw up his name, uh, his last name. But Pastor Thabiti is with the Gospel Coalition. He's from the East Coast. He's just an awesome man of God. And I can't recommend him enough. And he has a couple articles I would highly recommend to you. You can find these on the Gospel Coalition that give wonderful content uh, really for any relational conflict. Their, their main point in those articles is about racial reconciliation. But the first article, Reconciliation Looks Like, and the second one, Colorblind is Truthblind, talks about some of the things we're discussing today. And so I want to recommend those to you. And so having these mentalities we just have outlined throughout the sermon so far, we want to look at the practical steps we do once conflict arises. And so here's the practical steps to reconciliation. The first thing we need to do is we need to establish a common truth. Without agreeing on what occurred, there's no way to move forward. And guys, this is important to establish that assumptions, personal context, unspoken expectations, attachment styles, past experiences, traumas, and pathologies, they often cause us to have views of current interactions that are like a funhouse mirror. They kind of reflect reality, but they twist it slightly to fit our own concerns and self-interest. Let me paint a picture for you. You know, I'm at church and I have a bunch of hard meetings that day and I get a bunch of hard feedback and I get a bunch of critique and I go home and my wife is kind of emotionless when she greets me. And maybe she says something that is just really neutral. But I respond and go, why is everybody critiquing me today? And she looks at me and says, I I wasn't critiquing, I didn't say anything. Yes, you were! And we start in conflict. The reality could be that she actually didn't say anything bad or negative, but my previous interactions from the day mixed with my pathology and my ego and other things, they play into that current reality and twist the truth. And so the first step we need to do is we need to agree on what is truth. And and it's important to realize that our perceptions, they do always have validity and that they're often logical once you recognize the person's background and story, just like it's, it's logical that I would be self-protective after a hard day like that. But guys, perceptions are not always valid in that they are based on empirical fact. They're valid in logic, yeah, it, it makes sense, but it's also not empirical fact. So fact has to be established in order for reconciliation to occur. And this is why we discussed last week that we need to, everybody show me your pointer finger, point to the facts. You guys remember that from the five parts of non, nonviolent confrontation, right? Point to the facts. If you don't know what I'm talking about, go back and listen to last week. We need to point to the facts before we discuss feelings or thoughts. It's also important to realize that sometimes two parties involved are going to be in such a height of conflict that they're not going to be able to agree on the facts. 
That's quite honestly what's going on in our global and national idea of racial reconciliation. We can't agree on the history of the facts. And so what needs to happen is a third-party mediator needs to come in when two people can't agree or another witness to help establish what occurred because, dear friends, this is a truth you need to understand. Feelings are not fact. Never have been, never will be. Whether it's my feelings or yours, they're not fact. And so often it means accepting multiple aspects of truth from both people rather than just those that back our own position. And this is why people arguing over a topic usually find statistics that back their own opinion when often both sides have statistical validity that should be considered in coming to the understanding. So establish common truth. Secondly, there's a heart work that needs to go on for both people in the conflict. Both people need to prepare in the midst of the conflict because of the other preparation work they've done, to give what's called judicial forgiveness and judicial contrition. Now, you might go, Hans, those are words I'm never going to use in daily life. What do they mean? Well, let me explain them to you. Judicial forgiveness is different than relational forgiveness. Relational forgiveness is full reconciliation and restoration of the relationship. Judicial forgiveness is the willingness to grant the same pardon Christ gave to all mankind. Guys, did Christ give judicial forgiveness to every human that's ever lived? Yes. He did not give relational forgiveness. That requires repentance. Now, you might argue me on theological grounds about uh, efficacy of, of the cross and, and, and the atonement, but here's the deal. He gave judicial forgiveness to anyone, but he didn't give relational forgiveness until repentance was in place. So judicial forgiveness is a willingness to sacrifice your own hurt for the glory of God and the good of his body. But it's not yet full reconciliation, like I said, because if there's not repentance on the part of the other person, then and to engage fully in that relationship would be unwise and may even set you up for further abuse. At the same time, both parties need to look at judicial contrition in their heart. It's a work ready to confess fully and truthfully because even if we're the person coming and saying, hey, you harmed me, maybe they have something in the midst that they need to say to us and we need to confess as well. It's not a confession to simply get to the next step of reconciliation and forgiveness, but it's a confession to purge oneself from anything that might cause division between God and man. In the case of contrition, this often also includes preparing our hearts to empathize with the person bringing the charge to us so that we might have compassion on them and what they've been dealing with, even if we disagree with the factual nature of it. That's happened a lot of times, folks, where people have come and said, Hans, you really hurt me. And I'd say, okay, great, let's explain it. And, and I'll say, man, I'm so sorry you're hurting, but I still disagree with the factual nature of what you're bringing. Well, you're not being repentant. Well, let's, let's bring in a third party. Let's figure this out. I, I'm hurting that you're hurting, but I'm not going to change the facts, right? And so we can empathize with another person, even if we disagree with the factual nature of it. In cases like uh, politics or racial reconciliation, this means being ready to humble yourself in areas where you may have been blind and being willing to grant mercy and grace to others as they admit there are areas where they have been blind. That's how that forgiveness and contrition works in those cases. Then third comes redemption and restitution. This is where the offender comes out of the bad place. That's the redemption piece in a posture of eternal repentance. You see, when we repent and turn to the Lord for the rest of our lives, we believe that that sin we did was bad. We don't stop believing that once we get forgiveness. And then we also become ready to do whatever restitution is necessary to rebuild trust and relationship. If financial brokenness 
then finances need to be restored. If relational brokenness, then trust needs to be rebuilt over time. Perhaps with greater accountability, it needs to be set in motion. And if we're unable to give this, the work of true peace can be halted. We have to be willing to jump into that. So then if we can establish common truth and play out judicial forgiveness and judicial contrition as well as redemption and restitution, then we're ready to move into relational forgiveness. This is actual reconciliation. And from this place, we then move forward together in solidarity on the mission of Jesus, proclaiming his gospel truth and attempting to shine our light out of righteousness and justice to whoever might listen. You might say, Hans, this is all great and good for the church, but what do we do with non-believers? Well, as I talked about last week, you can go re-listen to it. We're not given a responsibility for the non-believing world. We're given a responsibility to evangelize them and call them into the kingdom of God. But if we don't change their minds, guess what we do? We let them go. We let them go. But in the church, we are called to reconciliation. If we're finding that for some reason reconciliation is not coming with a brother or sister in Christ, then both parties or whatever parties are involved need to stop and examine what barriers may be keeping them from reconciling. And there's four I want to share with you and then we'll finish up. And there might be more, but these I think cover the biggest areas of what I've seen in my time in the church that are barriers to reconciliation. First is ignoring the heart work necessary to making reconciliation happen or maybe expecting it to come in the midst of conflict without having prepared your heart. Part of this is placing my desires and needs and feelings above the good of God's witness in my community and in the community at large. And so we need to regularly be asking for God's intervention and softening our hearts through prayer and the word. So when conflict does come, we approach it with godliness. Secondly, another barrier that I've seen is passiveness when we see sin or bitterness growing in ourselves or another. This is often disguised by the false godliness of peace faking, as I talked about earlier. Pastor Thabiti defines it this way in one of his articles. Peace faking is an escape response. It's running away while acting as if you're not. It's saying peace, peace, when there is no peace. Peace faking smears the situation with whitewash. Peace faking sounds a lot like peacemaking and even tries to walk and talk like peacemaking. But his point is, is that it isn't. To overcome this, we need to keep short accounts in our relationships asking the Lord to reveal bitterness so we can work towards peacemaking. This has been an ongoing work in my own life, in my own marriage, right? In my own relationships. A lot of us figured out coping mechanisms of shoving down bitterness and pretending it didn't exist, and then it eventually comes up and blows up. And that's part of what my pathology was in the past. And so we need to do the work of constantly checking our hearts and saying, is there any brother or sister in Christ, especially in my own family, that I've got bitterness towards? And how do I lay that down and work towards true reconciliation? A third barrier to reconciliation is a refusal to engage others quickly enough when common truth-telling is not emerging. When you can't establish that first step, you guys should pause and go seek help. To combat this barrier, if we're not able to get through step one above uh, that I was talking about, we need to engage someone else and, and sacrifice our possible embarrassment for the end goal of reconciliation. Guys, when we engage in conflict, an end goal should not be their being right or our being right. 
it should be the glory of God and that the proclamation of reconciliation occurs. Lastly, the last barrier I often see is justification in our own minds that Matthew 18 doesn't apply to my particular conflict. Maybe we believe the person we need to go to won't hear us, so why even bother? Maybe we believe that others who may be brought in have ulterior motives or will just back the person blindly that I'm coming to. But dear friends, this is exactly why Matthew 18 is prescribed, because you may be unheard by one person. You may be unheard by even three people. But that is why eventually Matthew 18 declares that unreconciled conflict needs to be brought before the body, where both parties submit to the judgment of the body of Christ, where the Spirit of God dwells. Brothers and sisters, our King and Lord proclaimed very clearly, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons and daughters of God. Let us love not in word and speech only, but in action and truth. And so I want to end by asking a couple of questions. In which relationships do you need to stop peacemaking and start peacemaking? Where have you let relational bitterness and anger fester and grow and cause distance and maybe even division? What relationships do you need to work on where you know this is the case? And then how are you going to go about taking steps that you can control to play your part in making those relationships relationships of shalom? If we want to be a church of shalom, the examples and models, a preview of what true shalom looks like, we need to take this seriously. I pray that we would hear these last few weeks of practical application in what it is to be the kingdom of God amidst chaos and that we would take it so seriously with urgency. That we would begin with obedience in the household of faith so that we can get serious about calling others into the household of faith and affecting bigger issues like reconciliation among races and reconciliation among the church, all of which fall ultimately into the reconciliation of the gospel, proclaiming that God is capable of reconciliation. I've wondered if anybody has thought, well, did Hans kind of forget the whole racial reconciliation thing? He did the blog, you know, months ago and then kind of let it die. Here's the reason as to why I haven't been more adamant about it, about specifically racial reconciliation. If we can't get a church of people who are generally and broadly the same, <laughs> I hate to tell you guys, we're a very, very monochromatic church, right? If we can't even get people who come from very similar demographics and backgrounds and ethnicities <laughs> to reconcile in the gospel, should we go launch off and try and solve hundreds of years of racial reconciliation? Probably not. How about we get the gospel established among ourselves and then we go and take on the world's problems? Amen? That's where our heart is. It's still definitely an issue that we need to engage, but we can't engage that reconciliation until we get the gospel of Jesus' reconciling us to the Father as the core of who we are. May we be a church that takes seriously the role of being ministers of reconciliation.